Hello all and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. I am one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our OITE review. We are continuing on with upper extremity and sports. Now, if you haven't, please take a second to go and leave us a review. You can just go and tap the five star button if you think it's five stars. If you think it's less than that, feel free to send us an email <laughs> and uh, and let us know um, kind of your feedback, things that you like, things that you don't like, things you think we can improve on. And also follow us on social media at Nailed It Ortho. That's going to be on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So uh, without further ado, please enjoy another episode from our OITE review series. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And so that is medial scapular wing. Now, what or injury to what structure leads to lateral scapular winging? So an injury to the spinal accessory nerve that innervates the trapezius is going to lead to lateral scapular winging. And uh, uh, just a kind of a quick thing about scapular winging. Uh, one, look at pictures uh, because any sort of verbal discussion about it may not make <laughs> yeah. complete sense. But um, how... It was once described to me the difference between medial and lateral scapular winging is the position of the inferior pole of the scapula. So if the inferior pole of the scapula is pointing medial or coming medial, then it's medial scapular winging. And if it's lateral uh, or inferolateral, it's going to be lateral scapular winging. And uh, the trapezius uh, and it's also just looking at the muscles involved. Like you said, the uh, serratus anterior is responsible for uh, protraction of the uh, scapula on the scapulothoracic articulation. And it's going to pull the muscle or it's going to pull the scapula more laterally. So if you have a palsy in that muscle, the scapula is going to drift medial. And the trapezius is responsible for elevation and uh, internal rotation or inferior rotation of the inferior scapula. So if you have a palsy in that or a weakness in that, the scapula is going to want to drift out lateral. Uh, the therapy for this is uh, going to start off with trapezius strengthening and waiting for uh, that palsy to resolve. Uh, but operatively, you can try either a nerve exploration. You can, for really bad winging uh, scapula thoracic fusion, it's not the best procedure because it does limit a lot of shoulder function. But for these patients that it's a big problem in, uh, you can consider a scapula thoracic fusion. You can also consider something called an Eden Lang procedure, which is a transfer of the levator and the rhomboid muscles which are innervated by a different uh, nerve uh, and uh, can help with uh, the uh, correction of the lateral scapular winging. Um, and then you have something called a snapping scapula syndrome. What is that? Yeah, so this is, um, this is uh, kind of what it sounds like. You know, you have scapulothoracic crepitus is what scapular... Um, uh, snapping scapular syndrome is, but you have painful scapulothoracic crepitus when 
with arm elevation that is relieved when you manually stabilize the uh, scapula. And um, things you need to rule out and, and patients that you're concerned for this is, you know, any type of osteochondromas or uh, elastofibroma dorsi, you know, these are all, you know, space occupying lesions that can be seen underneath the, uh, you know, around, around the scapula. And how you uh, treat this is with physical therapy or injections or NSAIDs in most cases um, that are not due to, you know, some osteochondroma of some sort. And for patients that for some reason these does not work on are conservative treatment, which typically works in most cases, um, you know, you could have an open or an arthroscopic bursectomy, and you can also resect the superior medial um, scapular border. Again, I, I have not seen this and have not seen this procedure done, but, you know, I've read it and um, this is probably one of the, these, these conditions are probably some of the lower yield things to know about, but, you know, we're still just trying to be thorough and review everything. So um, just know that about sca snapping scapular syndrome. Yeah, now, unfortunately, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. Uh, the more commonly uh, tested things rather than snapping scapula, but you covered them uh, with similar presentations are the uh, osteochondroma and elastofibroma. Um, I took out one of these on my tumor rotation was a uh, anterior scapular osteochondroma. And basically that is exactly what they had problems with was every time they moved their arm, they just said that they had like a grinding pain back there. And it turns out that they had a, sessile osteochondroma causing it and so we removed it and then the elastofibroma which really only happens in the scapula uh, is another common uh, reason for scapulothoracic pain um, but then the snapping scapula syndrome is uh, I guess more of a uh, diagnosis uh, like a rule out diagnosis um, yeah yeah, yeah for it's, sure. it's a pretty cool procedure yeah, I think those are, um, you know, we don't have like a dedicated tumor rotation. Like we have tumor guys that like, oh, like guys that do like peas and tumors that will, that'll do tumor cases and like, we'll go do like some, you know, um, like osteosarcoma resections and, mm -hmm. you know, the big, big procedures, but we don't have like a dedicated tumor uh, rotation. So I, I, have, I have yet to see one of these, um, you know, these scapula osteochondromas. I've seen many like ABCs and stuff like that that we've taken out, but I haven't seen one of those. Um, but anyways, just uh, moving forward, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot about osteochondromas and, uh, and oncological, uh, oncological things and orthopedics on our oncology section, uh, which I know you are excited for. Uh, we'll talk about that at some point, but continuing on, and we're talking a little bit about glenohumeral arthritis or switching switching gears, and uh, what are some possible causes of uh, of glenohumeral arthritis? You know, we know there are many different um, etiologies, and and it's it, a lot of times I don't know if they test you that they have arthritis, but they may test you on the underlying condition or trying to figure out what the underlying condition is. Yeah, the. I mean, just like any other joint, you can have the primary OA, you can have post-traumatic uh, arthritis, uh, cuff tear, arthropathy, uh, I think are probably the three most common. Then the next most common is going to be rheumatoid uh, shoulder. Um, but then you can also have uh, AVN. You can see post-capsulorophy uh, arthritis. And basically what that is, is you've just over-tightened the shoulder and 
uh, with so much extra glenohumeral forces being pushed uh, in that space, it'll just degrade the cartilage. And then uh, chondrolysis from, uh, I mean, I've seen the question of chondrolysis from, they could, because they used to do intraarticular, uh, uh, what is the medication? I want to say it's bupivacaine. Uh, oh yeah yeah for uh, um, catheters that's it. will lead to chondrolysis so years ago after a shoulder arthroscopy they would just leave a catheter in the shoulder joint and just infuse i think it's bupivacaine i apologize yeah, it's bupivacaine. That's not right but uh the, that can lead to chondrolysis and then uh you can get kind of a charcot sort of shoulder joint for it like a neuropathic arthropathy which those are bad. That's just, that just looks like a shoulder that's been blown to smithereens. Uh, but yeah, um, what are some of the common uh, history and physical findings in patients with the sh- with shoulder arthritis? Yeah. And this is, you know, you just think about arthritis in any joint, it's pain, loss of range of motion. And especially with shoulders, they have a loss of external rotation due to anterior and inferior capsular tightness, which is one of the things we were somewhat talking about when we were just previously mentioning frozen shoulder. But in that case, we we're talking about our essential lesions of the cracker humeral ligament, as well as the rotator interval, which is again, our anterior uh, shoulder structures, which have, which lead you to that decreased um, external rotation. And anybody who wants to learn a little bit more about total shoulder arthroplasty and, you know, some of these different causes, we have a, an episode uh, with Dr. Salazar that we, uh, that we, that we published back in December of last year or in 2020. Uh, if you want to take a little bit of a deeper dive into that and, and learn more, um, about total shoulder arthroplasty, but um, continuing on, uh, what are some of the things to be on the lookout for in uh, patients with shoulder osteoarthritis? You know, especially when we're like looking at an X-ray and we're trying to figure out, oh, you know, I have some attendings where you throw an X-ray out there and they're like, oh, that's a rheumatoid shoulder, or oh, that's a, uh, you know, that's chondrolysis, or that's rotator cuff arthropathy. What are some of the things that we want to be on the lookout for on X-ray? So these ones uh, with just true shoulder osteoarthritis, you're going to see obviously glenoid wear, but you're going to see a flattening of that humeral head. It's it's not going to look like that nice spherical structure that you see in a healthy 18-year-old shoulder. It will uh, be more flat on that articular surface. You'll uh, see the uh, inferior humeral head kind of goat beard uh, osteophytes. Um, and then most commonly, and I, I think that this is actually fairly important for uh, several reasons. Uh, one is testing purposes. They'll ask you where is the uh, glenoid where most common and it's posterior inferior because you see this posterior subluxation of the humeral head. Uh, you can have associated rotator cuff pathology, but it's not necessarily rotator cuff arthropathy. So the humeral head will be centered on the glenoid and you may on an axillary view see posterior subluxation of the humeral head leading to posterior glenoid wear and uh, possibly like a deformation of the glenoid or more glenoid retroversion because of that. And uh, that is different, just like you were saying that they can look at an x-ray and say, oh, that's 
primary osteoarthritis and that's rheumatoid arthritis. What are some of the radiographic features of rheumatoid shoulder? Yeah. Rheumatoid shoulder, you know, in, in, in comparison to what you're just saying, where you have that posterior subluxation to your humor head that can uh, make different changes of the glenoid, you know, you have the paleo and neoglenoid, which we'll talk about in a bit when we talk about, um, you know, different classifications. But when you look at a rheumatoid shoulder, um, things that you want to note is that these shoulders are going to have central glenoid wear. Um, they're going to have osteopenia as well as medialization of the humeral head with offset loss. So the big thing to know is central glenoid wear and medialization of that humeral head loss of, uh, of that offset. And they don't have a lot of osteophytes. You know, when you think of traditional osteoarthritis, you can have those like goat beard osteophytes on the um, on the inferior humeral, humeral head, you know, they'll have some osteophytes in the glenoid, but in rheumatoid, central glenoid wear, minimal osteophytes, as well as medialization of the humeral head with offset loss. Now, as for rheumatoid, that is for, we talked about kind of normal shoulder OA. What about rotator cuff tear arthropathy, which this is probably, again, the third time we'll be mentioning this. So, you know, repetition is the father of learning. So I hope everybody is uh, knows these for uh, for the exams and then for real life as well. Yeah, the, uh, the key features of this is that proximal humeral head migration. So uh, primary osteoarthritis has a central uh, humeral head on the glenoid. Whereas the proximal migration means that they have no superior rotator cuff and the pull of the deltoid has compressed the humeral head uh, superior up against the uh, acromion. Uh, and like I said before, you get that acetabularization of the uh, uh, CA arch and the femoralization of the proximal humerus. Uh, and it really just looks more like a hip joint than it does a shoulder because you have that direct bony contact between the uh, inferior aspect of the acromion and the superior aspect of the uh, humeral head. And then uh, moving on to uh, kind of, well, I guess, continuing with rotator cuff arthropathy and looking at these x-rays, uh, there's a Hamada classification. Uh, and what is that and kind of uh, how does it help you kind of treat these patients? Yeah, so this, this is going to be a classification system for rotator cuff uh, arthropathy. And earlier we talked about the acromial humeral distance or acromial humeral interval, the space between the bottom of the acromion and the humerus. We said, you know, it should kind of be eight to 10 uh, millimeters or, or a little bit greater than that. Once you have less than that, that's something that may clue you into something going on with the rotator cuff. But so when we look at the Hamada classification, uh, Hamad one uh, would be the acromial humeral uh, interval is going to be greater than or greater or equal to six millimeters. A two is going to be um, uh, less than or equal to five millimeters. A three, and again, these are things that are showing us we have less distance between the acromion and the humeral head. Uh, so a three is going to be acromial humeral interval. It's going to be less than or equal to five millimeters. And now you start to see some acetabularization of the Caraco acromial arch, which we mentioned twice already. So this will be the third time as a charm. Um, uh, a Hamada four is now you start to have changes in the glenohumeral. So you have glenohumeral joint narrowing and you have a 4A and a 4B is when you have no acetabularization and a 4B is when you do have acetabularization. And then a Hamada 5 is going to be when you have humeral head osteonecrosis and then you have eventual uh, humeral head collapse. So it's kind of a spectrum of less disease to 
you know, more now you're seeing um, uh, changes in the glenohumeral joint, you're seeing changes of the acromion, you start to see, you know, acetabulization of the acromial uh, arch, and then, and then later on, you know, once it gets really bad, you start to see the humeral head collapsing in osteonecrosis. So, again, it's me with many things, just kind of know it's kind of this spectrum, and you can it clues you into how what, how bad of um of or what stage or what you know how bad of a disease or their, how bad their arthritis is, and that's one of the big ones. And another uh, big uh, or another classification for these glenohumeral arthritis, and when we're actually looking at the glenoid itself, um, is a Walsh classification. So, what is this Walsh classification? The Walsh uh, classification is more for just standard glenohumeral arthritis and. Uh, basically what you're looking at is where the, uh, for type A, the humeral head is centered on the glenoid fossa and there's uh, A1 is minimal central erosion and A2 is major central erosion. So you may see more of that in like a rheumatoid type shoulder. Uh, a type B Walsh is a posterior subluxation of the humeral head. A B1 has no posterior uh, bone loss of the uh, glenoid. A B2 has a posterior bone loss resulting in a uh, biconcave glenoid. So uh, like when we were all in elementary school and we drew the seagulls in the distance, uh, the glenoid will kind of look like that. And then a B3 yeah. is... Uh, basically just an enlarged biconcavity. So uh, it's just a more uh, pronounced uh, biconcave glenoid. And then a type C Walsh is uh, when you actually start to see a glenoid retroversion greater than 25 degrees because of that constant pressure of the humeral head on the glenoid. It's going to make it look like it's turned into a retroverted uh, glenoid. And then... Uh, going to the next step, that's looking at x-rays. But when we get a CT scan on patients with glenohumeral arthritis, what are some of the things you can see? Yeah, so you want to look at the, again, the glenomorphology, what you were just talking about. So is this a B1 or B2 glenoid? And that's one of the things to really pay attention to because I know that I've seen them, you know, focusing on that in, in questions and um, and in being able to recognize the glenoid and how much bone is left and if the glenoid is retroverted or not. You can also look at the wear pattern we're seeing on x-rays. And if you look and you see that there's a lot of medialization of the humeral head and there's a central wear pattern that may clear you into its rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and then again, posterior glenoid wear can be seen with you know, any of these external rotation contractures uh, in these patients that have osteoarthritis. So, what are some, there are many different treatments, but what are some treatment options for patients that have advanced osteoarthritis? With advanced OA, there's always the just non-operative management therapy injections, depending on the, the patient's uh, kind of overall risk factors for surgery. But for those that wish to have something done, uh, just a more simple arthroscopy with chondral debridement can uh, provide some symptomatic relief. Uh, the uh, hemiarthroplasty with biologic resurfacing, so you're just uh, doing a hemi similar to a hip fracture, 
but for the shoulder uh, where you're replacing the humeral head and then you're doing a biologic resurfacing of the glenoid. Uh, a total shoulder arthroplasty uh, is a good option for active patients uh, pending their rotator cuff is fully intact. A reverse shoulder arthroplasty, there are uh, surgeons I've worked with before that even in the uh, instance of an intact rotator cuff and function, they just go straight to a reverse shoulder arthroplasty, maybe because their uh, humeral head has medialized uh, to a point where they actually want to bring the uh, center of rotation out more lateral. Um, you can do a resection arthroplasty for uh, very sick elderly uh, patients that just want pain control. And then lastly, an arthrodesis. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head the appropriate uh, position of the arm for uh, shoulder arthrodesis, but I don't see that being tested. So I don't, I don't know the uh, practical importance of it uh, for this lecture series here or this uh podcast series, but uh, those are some of the uh, operative treatments that you can uh, do. Oh, here we go. Uh, fusion position uh, oh, yeah. in 20 oh, degrees yeah, of abduction, it. 30 degrees of forward flexion, and 40 degrees of uh, internal rotation. And a lot of that has to do with how the arm functions in space in front of us and being able to feed ourselves and do all of that. But uh, in terms of, uh, like I, I talked about earlier with shoulder arthroscopy, what are some of the risk factors for failure for shoulder arthroscopy in these arthritic patients? Yeah. So, you know, when you're counseling these patients and you're giving them their options, you know, one of our things would be like, oh, you got five realistic options. One is just like you said, do nothing. Another is shoulder scope. Another, you know, total shoulder, you know, reverse, hemi. They'll be like, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, be at a, um, if you would uh, benefit from a, you know, a shoulder scope, do it, blah, 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 blah. And so some of those things that are lead towards failure for using a, doing a shoulder arthroscopy for shoulder arthritis would be if the joint space is, is less than two millimeters. And if you think about like two millimeters, it's like, it's really small. Like, you know, if like you have a ruler and you put it down two millimeters, that is a very small um, space in a joint. So uh, shoulder, uh, treatment or orthoscopy may not benefit them very well, as well as if there's a, a lot of large osteophyte presence and if they have grade four bipolar disease. So you have uh, grade four really bad, you know, thickness cartilage defects on not only the humeral head, but also the glenoid. So these are all risk factors that, you know, the patients, you, you may not be best suited a uh, with a shoulder arthroscopy or arthritis may be a little too advanced so you may be a candidate for some of these other uh, other operations and, uh, and we touched quickly uh, on this a little bit earlier on shoulder arthrodesis what are some indications for a shoulder arthrodesis i've never seen one i've seen an x-ray of somebody that done one uh, one of my attendings but i wasn't in the procedure and i have never i've never seen one done i don't know if you have but what are some yeah no i i haven't done one um but uh, because of the shoulder arthroplasties, I mean, at the very least, you need a deltoid for a reverse total shoulder, uh, whereas obviously you need a deltoid and a rotator cuff for a total shoulder. 
uh, you can consider a shoulder arthrodesis in patients with combined rotator cuff and deltoid deficiency. So uh, those with uh, brachial plexus disorders, um, notably of the uh, kind of superior trunk that's going to affect the deltoid more than maybe like the hand. So these patients may have deltoid deficiency, but have good function of their hands. So you consider putting their shoulder in a, like I said before, 20 degrees of abduction, 30 degrees of forward flexion, 40 degrees of internal rotation so that they're able to feed themselves and uh, maybe type on a computer, use their phones, do all of that stuff. So uh, some of the um, intractable uh, instability uh, disorders of the shoulder where really nothing you do, because there's really no constrained shoulder arthroplasty like there is a constrained hip or a constrained knee it just really isn't a thing um, and then those for infection where they've failed uh, several prosthetic reconstructions due to infection and you just you want to give them an, an arm that they can still use uh, uh, relatively well and, uh, so you can consider a shoulder arthrodesis for those but again it's uh Definitely not a common procedure, not one that I've seen, but uh, it is still done out there in the world. And uh, I also talked about a shoulder hemiarthroplasty. What are some of the indications for a shoulder hemiarthroplasty? Yeah, so these going to be the young patients that just have like humeral head osteonecrosis without any glenoid degeneration. So, you know, all the pathologies on the humeral side and they're pretty young. Um, so those are going to be the patients. That's going to be indicated for it. But as of recent, it's been decreasing in indications because there have been multiple studies out that shoulder shoulders have, uh, have better results. And I think this is one of the talks or at least the, the points on even when you looked at like humeral head fractures, uh, that um, total shoulders uh, performed a lot better than hemiarthroplasty. So I think the, there are decreasing indications for this, but there are still indications. Um now, you know, we have been throwing this term around the total shoulder orthoplasty. Uh, we may have a brand new intern that's on here that's listening to this that hasn't done a single day of sports or any type of joints. And they've just been on the floor doing paperwork and trying to take care of all these trauma patients and, and don't know what a total shoulder orthoplasty is. So uh, what is a total shoulder orthoplasty? Uh, so it is really just a reconstruction of the shoulder joint, uh, similar to what you would do with a hip or a knee where you re replace both aspects of the articulation. So you're doing a glenoid resurfacing with uh, either an all poly implant or a uh, metal backed uh, poly implant, and you're doing a humeral head uh, replacement at the same time. And it's the preferred uh, treatment for uh, shoulder osteoarthritis and inflammatory arthritis with an intact rotator cuff. And it does have superior pain relief compared with a hemiarthroplasty. And uh, that's really due to the fact that you are uh, taking out also the diseased glenoid. Uh, whereas in a hemiarthroplasty, you're only taking out the humeral head, but leaving the glenoid behind, you do run a risk of further degeneration of the glenoid and pain uh, at that point, but a total shoulder resurfaces the glenoid. So you have a metal on poly uh, articulation 
um, but it's, uh, it can only be used in certain patients. And so what are some of the contraindications uh, for it? Yeah. yeah, so if you don't have enough glenoid bone to actually you know, put the component on, um, that is going to be a contraindication for a total shoulder orthoplasty, as well as if you have an irreparable rotator cuff or rotator cuff arthropathy. And not if you have a rotator cuff tear. So if you have a repairable rotator cuff tear, you could still do a total shoulder orthoplasty. But if you have an irreparable rotator cuff tear um, or, you know, rotator cuff arthropathy, because you need that rotator cuff, you know, we talk about the force coupling in order to keep the humeral head um, concentric in the in the glenoid through through motion uh, you need those force couples um, acting on the on the humeral head so if you don't have that you know that would lean you more traverse shoulder arthroplasty um, if you have uh, dysfunction of the deltoid or if you have a brachial plexus palsy as well those would be some contraindications for total shoulder arthroplasty um, now when you kind of look into the technical things and the, some of the biomechanics of uh, total shoulder orthoplasty, what are some things on the kind of the humoral side of, uh, of this operation that you should consider? When you're doing this, um, you want a, about a 25 to 45 degrees of retroversion in the humoral stem. And uh, note that uh, because the total shoulder uh, again, I can't harp on this enough. It requires a intact rotator cuff. Uh, if you make an aggressive bone cut on the humeral side, you do run the risk of injury to the rotator cuff insertion. So uh, making sure you are protecting the rotator cuff insertion so that it remains intact after the procedure is done um, is key uh, for this procedure. So thinking around a 30 degree retroversion in the humeral stem and only resecting the humeral articular surface and not too much extra bone so that you keep an intact cuff. And then uh, opposite of that, um, and probably one of the more important sides of the total shoulder is the glenoid. What are some of the uh, uh, key points to consider when uh, working on the glenoid side? Yeah, so you want to make sure when you position the glenoid component that you position it in neutral, you want to address any bone loss that there is, whether that's, you know, there are many different ways to address bone loss. You can have augmented, uh, an augmented component, which just means where the bone loss is, there's a piece of the component that may be uh, bigger in that in that area to address that, or whether it's using a bone graft or whatever it may be, you want to address the amount of bone loss. Um, when you think about... Um, keels versus pegs pegs are um uh you know these are on the undersurface of the component you know you have your you have the base plate component and this is more with, with uh if you think about like a total knee for example the actual component and you have these projections that go into the bone which can be in the form of like a peg or a keel which is more like a like this flat type of uh, uh projection versus a peg which is just a little if you just can think of what a peg is, it's a peg. Um, when you use a peg uh, with your glenoid component, those have lower um, rates of loosening uh, ver and the lower revision risk when compared with a keel. So you want to use pegs instead of keels. Or let me not say that. You just they're just associated with lower rates of loosening. I don't want the shoulder shoulder guys to attack me for this. I, you know, I'm not. I'm by no 
being an expert in total shoulder orthoplasty, but these are just some of the things that we've noted from some of the studies when we're reading up on this. And then you also have um, uh, uncemented glenoid or, or minimal cementing is associated with lower loosening rates. Um, so just using uh, minimal cement or not uh, using um, cement is going to be associated with lower loosening rates. If you put a bunch of cement on there, that may be associated with higher loosening rates um, when you're talking about the glenoid component. And um, oh, well, there we go. This next question is, is what we're briefly talking about. What are some things or some options to address posterior glenoid bone loss? Yeah, and this goes back to that Walsh classification and getting a CT scan before your uh, procedure so that you can template this. So if you do see a lot of humeral head subluxation and glenoid, glenoid bone loss, bone loss um, a few things you can do. One is uh, you basically just eccentrically ream uh, with about zero to 15 degrees of retroversion. So you kind of get rid of some of that uh anterior bone and, and give it a little bit of retroversion. Um, uh, another important thing is, is if there is a lot of posterior bone loss, you're going to need some sort of bone graft posterior so that you don't have early loosening of that glenoid component. So it's either in the form of bone graft or a posterior augmented component. Um, the correction with reaming is kind of similar to that eccentric reaming where uh, you kind of take out some of that deformity of the glenoid without needing a posterior uh, buttress or posterior augmentation or bone graft. And then uh, something called a, called a ream and run, which is uh, essentially you're just taking a big reamer in there and you're just uh, bringing the glenoid down to its subchondral bone and leaving it. And that's really uh, like a Kind of like a salvage procedure for for it is you're doing a shoulder hemiarthroplasty and you just want to give them some sort of for, functional shoulder so you're just going to ream to the hard subchondral bone and then leave it as is uh, and then uh, you can also do a, a reverse shoulder where you have the dome-shaped glenoid component but you still have that you still may need bone graft in that uh, posterior glenoid but at least you're uh, the glenoid portion, portion is that sphere of the uh, reverse total shoulder rather than the cup of the um, normal total shoulder arthroplasty. And then uh, kind of, we briefly talked about these a few times, um, but what are some of the most common complications associated with total shoulder? Yeah, and, and the main thing to know is glenoid component loosening. I think that is one of the most common complications I've definitely seen on a, on a, on a test or on a question. Um, so no, glenoid loosening is uh, one of the most common complications seen with total shoulder orthoplasty. Um, other complications include rotator cuff failure. So you can have, you know, a sub failure of your subscapularis, um, some this may be a little bit beyond this talk, and you can listen to our talk with Dr. Salazar to learn more about total shoulder orthoplasty. But when you're doing your exposure, when you're taking off your subscap, some people do just take the tendon off and do a tenotomy, or some people do an osteotomy where they take a piece of bone with the tendon and put it back down. So you can have subscapularis failure, uh, which may show up as this patient having increased external rotation compared with their contralateral side. If you make the components too big, you can have stiffness in an overstuffed joint. 
Um, you can also have an infection, and uh, which is most common in young males. And the organism which is tested is going to be C acnes or QD bacterium acnes. It used to be called like propionium bacterium acnes, but now it is C acnes. And one of the high yield things to know about this is, uh, is you want to hold the cultures for at least three weeks. I forget exactly what type of an organism it is. And I think that's a course, a tested part. We may probably put it in a, we may put it in a companion book or something. Uh, once I look it up some more, but um, know about C acnes, um, you know, and other complications or nerve injuries, which can be due from just some prolonged retraction. When you have one of those retractors just kind of underneath the conjoined tendon, so it could be musculocutaneous or axillary nerve, as well as instability. So those are the complications we've seen with total shoulder arthroplasty, but just know glenoid loosening is one of the most component things. Uh, now we, we've entered total shoulder arthroplasty. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the podcast and our OITE review series. We hope that that was helpful and um, we hope that you hit the subscribe button and we'll see you next time.